thank you for your presence. And we look to your presence to transform us. We pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And everybody who agreed said, Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be in worship with you. We are in this series called Losing My Religion. And we're talking about laying down our religion in favor of engaging God. Because the essence of following God in the way of Jesus is an intimate interaction with God's Holy Spirit. The essence of following God in the way of Jesus is not primarily a creed or a set of beliefs or a philosophy. We've said it before, but it is certainly not a voting block. The essence of following God in the way of Jesus is an intimate interaction with God's Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit, who is always free and never controlled. And that's the essence of following God in the way of Jesus. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. But let me ask you this. If you are honest, would you say your heart is at rest? Many of us in this room would say we are followers of God in the way of Jesus. But if we were honest, we might say, you know, my heart is not at rest. And when people in our world look at Christians who are just going through the motions of religion and forcing a smile upon their face, trying to appear as though their need for divine interaction is already met a long time ago, who can really blame them for saying, you know, Thanks, but I'll look elsewhere. Who can really fault them for saying, I think I find God more on the mountain trail? Who can really blame someone for saying, I had a deeper fellowship at the bar over a drink or three than I did in a place where everyone was trying to fake like they had already found their soul satisfaction. David Kinneman from the Barna Research Group said this, surprisingly, the Christian faith today is perceived as disconnected from the supernatural world, which is a dimension that the vast majority of outsiders believe can be accessed and influenced. So today we're talking about losing our religion by engaging God inwardly, not outwardly. And today we're just going to talk about briefly restlessness, balconies, and a man in a cave. So that's where we're headed. J.I. Packard said this, you can have all the right notions in your head without ever tasting in your heart the realities to which they refer. And a simple Bible reader and sermon hearer who is full of the Holy Spirit will develop a far deeper acquaintance with his God and Savior than a more learned scholar who's content with being theologically correct. The reason is that the former will deal with God regarding the practical application of truth to his life, whereas the latter will not. 
sometimes what happens is we come to faith in Christ somewhere along the way. Maybe this is your story. You know, you met Jesus and you were enamored with him and you just wanted more and more. And so you began reading and began joining Bible studies and began getting involved in church and serving him. And all of that served your season of developing your faith very well. It was very important. It should not be discounted. But then somewhere along the way, your life changed, your faith developed, and you began to realize love and the fruit of God's spirit is not growing in my life, and my heart is restless. But what had served you so well in the beginning, more Bible study, more this, more that, more activity outwardly, was no longer serving to develop and grow your faith in the same way. So you began to just add more, hoping it would, or feel guilty that you weren't adding more. But what if more is not always what's needed? Kingsley Manuel said this, Bible study without Bible experience is pointless. Knowing Psalm 23 is different from knowing the shepherd. Following God in the way of Jesus at its essence is an interaction with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who is always free, never controlled. So tradition, religion, the offerings of a faith community like ours, can instruct us towards a personal encounter with God. They can guide us towards an ongoing interaction with God's Holy Spirit, but they don't substitute for it. Religion, tradition, the offerings of a church like ours, they can point us in the direction, they can instruct us, but they don't replace the essence of what your faith is, which is that you hold the hand of one who has defeated a far greater foe than anything you're facing. And moment by moment, day by day, when you feel alone, you are never alone. When you face a problem you don't have a solution for, you have the wisdom of the one who does. So that ongoing interaction with God's Holy Spirit is the essence of your faith. So uh, what's tricky for us today is in our world, we have all these resources, amazing resources, but we're still restless. So many resources, so many songs and podcasts and books and conferences and places to grow. In the passage that Tim read just a moment ago in the book of Jeremiah, Israel had the whole of God's law but failed. So Jeremiah is this book in the Bible. It is thick and heavy with God's judgment and God's wrath, but then right in the middle of the book, from like chapter 30 to 33, there is this little window of relief and of hope. And those chapters right in the middle of the book are often referred to as the book of comfort in this overall book of Jeremiah. The story of the Old Testament, Jeremiah falls in the Old Testament, the story of the Old Testament, very much in a nutshell, could go like this. So God creates the world as a perfect garden. That's Genesis 1. All is well, all is perfect, all is right. There is shalom. But the first human beings disobey God. They do not follow God's way. 
So that beautiful garden becomes a wild jungle. That's Genesis 3. But God does not give up on these people he's created humanity. And he begins a covenant with his people. Now, in ancient times, covenants were a normal thing. That's kind of a, most of us remember, what, what exactly is that? We kind of have a loose idea. But in ancient times, there were two kinds of covenants. Either the covenant was between equal parties or the covenant was between unequal parties. And there is widespread agreement that this covenant that God formed with his people was the latter. It was between unequal parties. In other words, the nation of Israel did not contribute anything to the covenant. God set up the covenant, and as long as they followed God, they had God's favor. This was the covenant. People at that time understood what that meant and that it was a covenant like that. So it is a huge surprise when the story of the Old Testament is over and over and over again, the people break the covenant. Over and over and over, they break the covenant. And the people of that day knew covenants, and they would have absolutely no expectation that God would give them another chance. Like, if a covenant is between unequal parties and this party breaks it, it's over. And the person who set up the covenant has every right to seek retribution. So that's what their expectation would have been. It, is a, it would have been a huge surprise to the audience, Jeremiah's original audience to hear that God is willing to try again. It would have been unheard of and a total shock to them that there would still be fellowship with God. And not only that, but that now there would be a direct connection with God coming from within not dependent on the rituals and all of this performed by the priesthood. There is this promise right in the middle of Jeremiah that God will be able to be engaged inwardly, not just outwardly. This new covenant, Jeremiah says, will be written on our hearts, not just on tablets of stone like the, old, like the Ten Commandments that this new covenant will be written on our hearts. So in Jesus, this becomes true, and a new covenant is born. So then all throughout the New Testament, we're hearing about this, this new covenant, which really should best be understood as a renewal of the covenant. But 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is saying this, you show that you're a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but what? But with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Jeremiah's readers had the old covenant in mind. Today, we have the Spirit of God. Sometimes, though, just like they failed to understand the old covenant's place, sometimes we fail to understand that God's Holy Spirit resides within those who are followers of God in the way of Jesus. And so we get busy outwardly, and neglect our interior lives. 
sometimes rather than engage God's spirit inwardly, we get busy for God outwardly, and we don't ever see our hearts at rest. So just to illustrate this, um, anybody ever been to New York City on New Year's Eve? You only did, well, we did that together, yes. Anybody else? <laughs> you only do that once, right? You only do that once, yes. Um, remember Y2K, some of you were alive for Y2K. 1999 turned the year 2000, and for history lesson's sake, that was, there was a lot of anxiety in our country at that time because, you know, the old computers were going to go from 1999 to 2000, and all the, there was fear that financial institutions were going to crash and banks were going to, you know, the end of the world was coming. So people were stockpiling food and, you know, going off to their cabins in the woods. But Tim and Sherston, who's here, and a few others of us, um, we were young, not easily given to fear, so we hopped in our cars and went to New York City to be in Times Square for uh, 19 Y2K. And uh, when you do that, you get blocked into a block. Like the police say, okay, you entered that block, that city block, and you have to stay there for several hours. Like if we got there more than eight hours in advance, you're standing in one block and you cannot leave the block. It's the way they kind of control it for safety. And uh, I remember standing in that block and you're celebrating with, okay, countdown with Argentina. Now let's count down with this other country every hour on the hour till it's New York's ball dropping. But I remember standing down in the street and looking up and seeing people on balconies. They were there to celebrate New Year's, but they were having a very different experience from the balcony. Okay? So from the balcony, they could look down on us and they could look and they could say, wow. I wonder how those people are going to get food and water. They could look down on us from the balcony, and they could say, I wonder where those guys are going to go to the bathroom. They could look down on us, and they could say, I wonder how, are those people's legs getting tired? I bet they wish they would have brought their camp chairs. Okay, J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, talks about this balcony street comparison, because from the balcony... All of those questions are very theoretical. We, on the street, were asking those exact same questions. But it was very practical. Okay, so the same can be said of theology. Sitting in the balcony, you might say, huh, I wonder, does original sin exist? And have a debate about that, theoretically. On the street, you know sin and shame from your own life. And you're wondering how you can overcome it. From the balcony, you say, how can God be three persons in one? And all the questions surrounding that. But from the street, you're saying, how can I learn to follow and love and trust these three persons who have saved me. From the balcony, you might say, like, eh, does evil really exist? Is evil a thing? From the street, you know it is. And as it comes into your life, you go, how am I going to deal with this? One is very theoretical. One is very practical. So let me ask you this. Have you been living 
your faith from the balcony or from the street? Walking with Jesus is meant for the street. There's your outward life that everybody sees. And then there is your inner life that people do not see directly, but is so important. Scripture says that out of the overflow of a person's heart, their mouth speaks. And Jesus was often frustrated with the religious leaders of his day because they were so focused on the outward life while neglecting the inward life. One time he said this in Matthew 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear as people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. We are made for intimacy with God. And you can be adopted into the family of God but not experience your adoption. You can be adopted into the family of God, but not experience your adoption because the experience of being a beloved son or daughter of God is a work of God's Holy Spirit in your life. Through Christ and justification, we are saved. Through God's Spirit, we experience our salvation. We experience our adoption, our belovedness. We don't earn intimacy with God. We don't have to perform to get the Holy Spirit's involvement in our life. The Spirit moves freely. The Spirit of God is like a free-flowing river that we surrender to. What does religion do? Religion stands in a dry canal where God used to flow, where God's spirit used to flow, and religion demands that God move there again at the same rate, the same volume, the same force that he did before. Religion stands in a place of control and says, God, you got to move here again because you did in the past. God may move there again. God may not move there again because God's spirit is a free-flowing river that we don't control but that we submit and surrender to. Last thing is a little story. Once upon a time, there was a monk who was living in a cave, and there were three guys who were thinking about becoming monks, and they wanted to go visit this monk they'd heard about in the cave. So the three guys travel out to the desert. They go to visit this monk in the cave. And for the first hour, two of the three monks are peppering this monk with all these questions. What's your prayer life like? What are your daily disciplines? How do you know God? Tell me about why you chose to live in a cave. They're asking, asking, asking. And the third, the third guy is just quiet. The whole time he's just quiet. So after about an hour, the monk says, I've noticed you've been quiet this whole time. Is there anything you want to say or ask? 
And that third man says, no, just being in your presence is enough. Just being in your presence is enough. That is my vision for you and for me. That we would so develop our relationship with God that people could say of you, you don't have to do anything. You don't even have to say anything. Just being in your presence is enough. Because when I'm in your presence, just like in the presence of God, I know I'm fully loved, fully accepted, no fear of rejection. Just being in your presence is enough. Do you know how that type of person is developed? Through sitting in God's presence and coming to see ourselves as his beloved and realizing that with him and only him are we fully known. There's nothing he doesn't know. And with that full knowledge, fully loved, with him and only him, no fear of rejection. And that begins to form the personhood of a person who's surrendered to God's spirit. And it doesn't happen overnight. It happens over time. But then in time, people start to say, you know what? No, just being in your presence, that's enough. This past summer on sabbatical, I was reintroduced to a practice, a daily practice called the Daily Examine. And uh, if you only do one practice of prayer daily, I would hope for you it would be this. The daily practice, a lot of people credit Ignatius for it, but it's been around longer than him. He just made it popular. Uh, But basically, it is a reflective attitude that is a posture of prayer, usually each evening, about the day's events. And it kind of has five steps. Um, sometimes they're not all done. Sometimes they're done in a different order. Sometimes they're, mo- you know, modified. People do this differently. But it begins with gratitude. Like, is there anything in my day that I can be grateful for? And, you know, there was a day on sabbatical that Tim and I received some really bad news about our small business. And it was like that children's book. I, was, I would, got to the daily exam in that evening in my journal. I'm right, and I'm thinking to myself, like that children's book, this is, there's nothing good in this day. This was an awful, terrible, no good, very bad day. That's what I was thinking. And then as I got quiet and took a few moments to just reflect on the day's events, I thought, you know, my mom just called me totally out of the blue just to check in. There was just a little gift in this really hard day where we got some really difficult news. So it begins with gratitude, awareness of sins. And overall, people get kind of nervous about sin and, you know, oh, is that like guilt trip and what does that mean? Um, Guilt and shame, not the same. Guilt is when I reflect on the day and I say, you know, I want to be present to my children. But I was on my phone all evening. And I come to an awareness that what I, where I was on my phone all day is not consistent with the values I want to live by. And I just see that. And I feel that tension in myself. Now, shame is different. Shame is not seeing that and acknowledging that. That's guilt. That's a feeling of guilt. Shame is, I am a terrible mother. I should not be allowed to be a mom. I'm t- I, I have no 
is, you know, it's this unworthiness that shame. Shame is unhelpful and not of God. Guilt actually plays a role in our development spiritually. We don't, well, maybe someday we'll do like a whole series on that. That's such an interesting topic. But number three is the core of the examine. It's the review of the day. And some nights, this is all I do, just number three. In number three, you review the day with these questions in mind. The old school words for it go like this. Where was the consolation in my soul? Where was the desolation in my soul today? You could say it like, what was brutal in my life today? What was beautiful? Consolation, beauty, desolation, brutal. Do you know when you just get quiet and pay attention to your experience of your days, God's Holy Spirit will guide you in that. Because sometimes what you think you love about your life is actually brutal and desolation. And sometimes something that is like so hard at the outset ends up being a piece of consolation for you. So uh, for me, I am finding this to be a small daily practice that is nurturing my inner journey with God. So I printed this in the message notes in the back for you. And if it would be meaningful to you, pick one up, try it out this week. I would love to hear how it goes for you. This is one simple way that we can begin to develop our interior lives with God. Let's pray together as we close. Lord Jesus, thank you for this start of a new week. We're glad that by your grace, we get to start again. That yesterday is finished. Tomorrow has not yet come, but today is the day you've made. Today, you are present. Today is what is real right now. And God, we know we may face challenges tomorrow, difficulties ahead that we don't have solutions for right now, but God, we know that there are solutions we can't even see that you have. And you've shown us, God, what is good, what's required of us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you. So help us as we make our focus today and the week ahead keeping our faces in your face. We pray all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Everyone who agreed said, amen. amen. Well, we celebrate two sacraments here. Baptism, which we saw earlier, which is this one-time event of acknowledging our adoption into the family of God. And then communion, where we weekly come to the table to receive from God what we need to live the life that he has called us to. And so in coming to communion,